0: Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, through our Lord Jesus. Amen. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's a familiar description of Jesus, I would imagine, for us. It's almost verbatim the language of the Agnus Dei, which we've not sung in a while, but we'll be singing in about a month or so when Lent rolls around. Well, this is probably a very... Common designation of Jesus for us, it's actually not all that common in the Bible. In fact, Jesus, imagined as a lamb, only shows up a small handful of times in the New Testament, two of which are in this reading, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and behold, again, the Lamb of God. On top of that, it's difficult to know what John may have meant by this phrase— Lambs, for instance, were not exclusive for sin offerings. Bulls, heifers, and goats were all used as well. The Day of Atonement, for instance, the most significant day in all of the Old Testament festivals for the atonement of sin, right, for taking away sin, did not involve any lambs, but two goats instead. Two goats. If John wanted to emphasize an animal sacrifice that Jesus is fulfilling to take away sin, he should have said, Behold, the goat of God. Or maybe goats, if we're going to use the Day of Atonement language. The other event that people turn to when they try to understand what is John talking about here when he says, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is they go to the Passover. The Passover specifically involved a lamb which was killed. Its blood was then taken with hyssop and smeared along the doorframe of the house. But the Passover wasn't about taking away sin. It was about deliverance from slavery, deliverance from death, from Pharaoh, from his land, his regime of death in that land. To be fair to John, not the baptizer, because this gets really confusing. John the baptizer is not the author of John's gospel account. It's a different John. The language of John's narrative does urge us as readers to consider the Passover. In fact, when Jesus is crucified, John seemingly abandons historical fact to shout at his readers through poetic imagery, grabbing our attention to see this is a Passover event. He tells us something impossible. He tells his readers, the soldiers took hyssop, Lifted it up with a sponge to feed Jesus some liquid. It's not possible. And I don't mean like in a miraculous way, but this seems to be something that only John includes. Hyssop was part of the mint family. It grew about a foot to two feet tall, and it's like a floppy herb. You try to put a wet sponge on a floppy herb and lift it up, it's not going to work. You need a reed or a stick. John seems to be inserting this imagery, again, shouting at us through this poetic imagery to say, look, this is a Passover event, but it's not a lamb that's dying. It's Jesus. It's his blood. That is a very long, maybe convoluted way for me to tell you today that we don't know much about what the baptizer is specifically referencing when he says, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we know he really wants to connect his readers with the Passover in his narrative. So today, I want to take some time to look at both those things. Sin offerings in the Old Testament, and to unpack more fully the language of Passover and how these things might connect to Jesus and therefore our life in God's mercy today. When we consider animal sacrifice in the Old Testament times, we have a tendency to see the killing of the animal as an act of God's punishment against the animal. The story often goes, and it's a very, I think, familiar and common one for us. God's got to kill somebody, right? Somebody has messed up. There has to be justice. That justice must be met with death. He's got to kill somebody. And so the animal takes our sin, becomes sin for us, and is killed to take our punishment. It's very common, but it actually doesn't fit as cleanly with the scriptural account very well. For instance, the Day of Atonement that I mentioned. Two blameless goats, not lambs, two blameless goats. One goat has all of the sins of the people placed on it. They lay their hands on its head. They speak all the sins of the people onto the goat. And it's not killed in punishment. It's sent out of the Israelite camp. It's sent into exile, right? It bears the sin of the people away from the people, but it's not punished with death specifically. It's exiled. It takes the people's sin away. The other goat also without defect or blemish. Think of that. Without defect or blemish, it's a blameless goat. It represents this life of righteousness before God, a life that is good and blameless before him. That's the goat that dies, It's the representative of the people. It's the goat that the people all say, we want this blameless life to go before God on our behalf and represent all of us before Yahweh. That's the goat that dies. And in its blamelessness, it can go before God's presence. It can ascend to the throne of God, which Yahweh specifically describes as a pleasing aroma before him. Right? This pleases God, this blameless life offered on behalf of others. The idea of a blameless representative is common throughout the other sin offerings. Again, heifers, bulls, goats, and lambs. The animal wasn't being punished, it seems. It was chosen because it was perfect. It was chosen because it was without blemish. It was chosen because it symbolizes the life God desires for his people. The death of the animal is sacrifice, not punishment. The life submitted to God even unto death. That animal, in a sense, is symbolizing, representing this idea of submitting to God, even if that means death, going along with his will for the sake of others. Isaiah will actually develop this very idea when he talks about the servant of Yahweh. The servant shows up to do the will of God, to proclaim peace in God's favor, to bring about release, and this servant will live a life of surrender, empowered by the Spirit to surrender for the sake of others. And this servant we hear, filled with the Holy Spirit to bring about God's kingdom in the world, is even willing to suffer and die if he must, as Yahweh writes. Excuse me, as Isaiah writes. Isaiah says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, lamb of God, like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers, he will be silent The servant, the one who does God's will, who acts on behalf of others, surrenders, yields to the needs of others, even if it means his death. And he goes willingly, like all of these sheep that are just silent, waiting for the shear. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The sacrificial system is about a blameless life. A life of service and surrender that takes the place of others, represents others, and this is so pleasing to God. That's the sacrificial system. But the gospel account today also wants us to see Jesus connected to the Passover as well, right? We have that hyssop imagery among others that should drive us to the story of Passover, Here we see a lamb chosen, specifically a lamb, not another animal. And we have that language of without blemish or without defect again. It's a life being chosen as a blameless representative. Each household is supposed to say, that blameless animal, that's going to represent us in this event. The lamb is killed, its blood is put on the door, and they do this so that they'll be saved from death, from death. Yahweh made it very clear, he's going to strike the land of Egypt. All the firstborn in Egypt are going to die unless they carry out this ritual, choosing a blameless lamb and using its blood on the door. This story, to me, somehow ends up mimicking that story I told us earlier. It sounds often like this to us, that God is going to save Israel from himself, right? God's going to strike Egypt. God is bringing death, actively going to go kill all the people, the firstborn in Egypt. But he's going to skip over some houses. He's going to pass over, skip over these houses where there's the lamb's blood. But in Exodus 12, the author's language actually implies something a little different. It says that when God sees the blood, he will pasach in Hebrew. Again, Passover, pasach. And he will not allow the destroyer to enter the house and kill. That means that there's a destroyer, and then there's God. God is going to stand over, pasach the door. He's going to be in front of the door. He's going to guard that house from the destroyer. Again, God doesn't seem to be the destroyer in Exodus 12. But that he's the one who fights and protects against the destroyer. That word pasach is used in that exact way in Isaiah chapter 31. Isaiah likens Yahweh to a lion. It's claimed to this prey. It is roaring fiercely, and it will not let anybody touch that prey. No matter how many shepherds or people come against it, it will protect what it has laid claim to. It roars over it. It's like birds hovering overhead. It will shield his people. He will pasach. Them, God in the Exodus is like a protective lion at the door, like a shield covering the house, stopping the destroyer from getting into the home. This does not mean that God is not responsible for the death of the firstborn in Egypt. The text repeatedly says that Yahweh will strike Egypt with the plague. But the striking of Egypt is a difference between being the source of death and allowing death to take place. If this is getting a little confusing, which it might be, I understand, going back to the story of the flood may clear it up just a little bit for us, hopefully. In the story of the flood, this word destroyer is used also. Back in Genesis, Yahweh sends destroying waters on the earth. It's the same destroying word used in the Exodus. He does so because he looks at the world, and people are ruling over the land with violence. They're filling the land with destruction and death. Excuse me. And in a sense, what God does in the flood is he takes his creative and protective hand away from the creation. He grieves, right? This isn't the way it is. It's all messed up. It's unraveling. It's decreating. And so he says, fine, I'll let you have what it is you want. I will take my creative hand away. What happens when God steps away from the helm of the creation? It goes back to the way it was in Genesis 1-1. A watery deep. That's what the flood was. When God removes his creative and life-giving hand, the creation unravels. It goes back to its darkness. It goes back to, in a sense, death, which is the absence of life. In the flood, he removes his protective hand because humanity keeps fomenting sin and death in the world. And he gives them the results of what they keep clamoring for, decreation. The same effects of sin and death are seen in Egypt, as Egypt perpetuates sin and death. Pharaoh exemplifies this. He exemplifies this unyielding attitude. He is demanding and destructive towards others. What he speaks and what he does, it decreates life. It decreates even the land. He brings death to the land. Pharaoh is the prime example here of the opposite of sacrificial living, the opposite of a blameless life. Pharaoh's land is a land of death. He will kill to get what he wants. And so like the flood, right, the flood was for the whole world, God instead sends a flood of the destroyer in the land of Egypt because of Pharaoh. God gives the land over to the destroyer to death that it has been so committed to and clamoring for. We have Pharaoh, and then we have all these lambs, blameless, chosen, being selected, that are offering, in a sense, the symbolic offering of themselves on behalf of the people, even though, yes, the people are claiming them to be used. They represent submission to Yahweh's ways, sacrifice for the sake of others. They're without blemish. They are righteous lambs, chosen to be representatives of each house on which their their blood is smeared. And as the destroyer comes through Egypt, Yahweh sees these blameless lives, sees these lives of sacrificial love for others, these ones chosen by the people to say, this blameless life represents our house, and he will not pass over it. He won't pass by and skip it. He will stop like a roaring lion, like a mighty shield, and he will defend that house from death. He will passach that household. Like Pharaoh, we contribute to and are agents of decreation. When we are unyielding towards the needs and care of human beings, when we are demanding in a way that is oppressive and harmful, we end up being like Pharaoh, right, ruling over the land. We t- participate in destruction and become, in a sense, little destroyers of God's good world. This is a problem that we share with every human being, the whole world. The whole world has this problem of sin. But Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's made himself. We didn't go and choose him and say, you be our blameless representative, right? He came first, sets himself up and says, I will be your blameless representative. A life lived in sacrificial service a life that yields itself for the sake of others. Even when we are destroyers, he yields himself to us. He's not saving us from an angry God, but saving us from sin and death, saving us from the destroyer that is at work in the world. He is the manifestation of a God who is willing to fight, who is willing to protect us. Even if it means his own death on a cross, he will do so. He desires us to live, and not only us, but all people. He desires life for the world. He doesn't want to have another flood event. He doesn't want to separate Egypt and Israel or any other nation as he did in the Passover, but to save the whole thing, to save the world. And so he's doing what seems impossible separating the destroyer from us, separating the destroyer from the world, taking sin away from people, protecting us with his blood, protecting us, in a sense, from ourselves, from our own sin and destructiveness, that it would not fully unravel us or his good world anymore. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, At this news, Andrew rejoiced and went searching for his brother, Simon Peter. At this, we too rejoice. In him, the God of mercy and compassion is revealed. In him, we rejoice and trust that we have deliverance, the promise of life. And we too rejoice and share this good news of a God of mercy who will do whatever it takes to protect and fight for his world. Now may the peace that passes all understanding guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.